right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is podcast number 237. And yes, I'm definitely getting into the zone of really awkward numbers to find trivia stats for. But hey, I found it. Dabinia scored the 237th goal of the 2018 NWSL regular season. That was the second goal scored in North Carolina's 3-0 win over Orlando on August 18th. All right, two chats today. First with Jeff Kasuf, founder of EqualizerSoccer.com. Believe it or not, Equalizer will be celebrating its 10th anniversary this summer. They've been providing solid coverage of women's soccer and and in many cases, the only good coverage of women's soccer in the States since summer 2009. Uh, Big reason I wanted to talk to Jeff was he's got a book coming out that he co-wrote with Karen Teven called The Making of the Women's World Cup. Uh, That book should be out early May, but you can pre-order it now. So great chat with Jeff. And then I caught up with Hal Kaiser, kind of did a State of the Union for the Houston Dash, like I've been talking to other people about different NWSL clubs. Hal and I, of course, called the the scrimmage last week, uh, dashed it in inner squad scrimmage, and Hal will be covering the dash for keepernotes.com again this season. So we talked about everything, all the advancements that the, the club has made since approximately this time last year. So hope you enjoy that. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with the man behind EqualizerSoccer.com. Most people don't know who Jeff Kasuf is, but they should. Jeff, you, 10 years ago, um, decided to launch a soccer site, and it's still going strong, and I think getting you know bigger and better each year. So before we get into talking about um, the book you have coming out and, and, and Carlos Cordero's response to the U.S. soccer lawsuit, I, I want just a little story about what led you to launch the site back in 2009, the first season of WPS. Yeah, yeah, 10 years, it's pretty wild. Um, yeah, I think uh, it was, I mean, in short, there was a void. It's a, a little bit funny to sit here and say that and think about it because obviously there's, there's still quite a void in, in coverage of the women's game now, but um uh, I was I was working for some other outlets, um, paying literally a penny a click, and I said, "What am I doing?" Um, and, and had the ability to, you know, figured starting my own thing, I would have the ability to kind of get a bit more creative and and I guess call the shots, if you will, and and just kind of chase some stories that uh, I wanted to chase and, and knew that needed to be covered. And um, when you're getting paid that, <laughs> it's it's pretty negligible whether you're you know, making that, that penny or not. So, um, kind of took it from there and, and knew that there was, a you know, a, a market for, for covering the women's game that was, that was really untapped. I mean, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of new fans to the game now and, and they certainly would recognize that there needs to be more coverage, but I, I know, you know, Jen, that, um, I think 2009 was like, I don't even really know who was covering the league on kind of a national level. So. Right. Um, right. And 2009, following what we could almost call the dark ages of women's right. soccer, uh, for both the, for both the national team and and the and soccer, because you had had that long gap, you know, since the folding of WSA and and, and WPS had meant to launch in 2008 and had to push back to 2009, and of course you had you had World Cup t- 
2007 and Olympics 2008, which of course the US one won, but both of those events were in China. So the time zone, you know, wasn't, wasn't the best for coverage, you know? Um, so yeah, so it, it was like 2009 is kind of like the beginning of the next generation, you know, then, mm-hmm. then capped off by, you know, that great 2011 quarterfinal performance by the U S against Brazil in the world cup, which of course right. then led to the, de- the demise <laughs> of, of WPS. <laughs> yeah. But at least, you know, since then we've been, it has been a straight 10 years of soccer of some sort in this country. You know, just that one year, 2012, you had WPSL elite, which bridged between Mm -hmm. WPS and NWSL, but it's like, we've had a consistent 10 years. And when you think about it, we've never had that before. Yeah. And I think the 2012 even had, you know, with the Olympics being in there, I know at least personally kind of bridge that gap on a, on a, um, a work front and even just, uh, you know, the attention level. And and obviously I think, (laughs) <laughs> the uh, you probably remember the nugget that I think is largely lost, and I, even I would have to dig out some notes. And I don't think I even have the email server anymore. But the eve of the gold medal game, well, it actually would have been the morning of, I guess, because they sent it after midnight. Was that initial group of which I think was four or so of the current NWSL teams that, oh, wow. that announced? Do you remember that they announced like vaguely? basically an intent to form, to reignite a league. Um, and they, it was really botched. It was like, they were trying to capitalize on the gold medal game and the attention around it. And I remember being in my hotel room for the Olympics and like it came after midnight and it was like the players didn't know it was coming. And they're like, we're about to go play in a gold medal game. So we really aren't fielding questions about some league we've never heard of. <laughs> yeah, um, we've got more important things to do today. Yeah. So, and that, that eventually led to, you know, it was a little bit after that the U.S. soccer stepped in and then NWSL was formed. But that initial, whatever that was, um, that, that could be a good yeah. little uh, trivia. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a great little nugget. Especially when we saw following the demise of WSA, they had, you know, the following year, it's like, okay, we're going to mm. have these exhibition matches and we're trying to relaunch but there was never anything concrete so i think when that news came out i was like yeah whatever like mm-hmm. you know i'll i'll believe it when i when i see it but that was the vibe that the uh the press release gave i might be misremembering the exact times but it was like it was not well handled um right so, right yeah so, so 10 years on from, from launching Equalizer Soccer, um, you've got a book release coming out, a book that you co-wrote with Kieran Teven, um, you know, mm-hmm. based in the UK, who used to have a podcast and still does a lot of stuff for, for Equalizer. Um, or at least, I guess now this summer, he's actually working for FIFA. But <laughs> yeah, talk, yeah. Talk, about, talk about this book, uh, just The Making of the Women's World Cup, right? That's the title? Yep, making of women, the making of the women's World Cup. <laughs> I can get it out. So, so talk about how this book came about, and and what kind of what kind of stories we would expect to to read in it. Yeah, so so Little Brown, which is a, a division of Little Brown that, that initially came to us, but Little Brown being the, the parent publisher, which is um, a lot bigger in the UK and, and has um, US divisions essentially by different name. Um, was interested in a, a Women's World Cup book with the timing, obviously, with the World Cup coming up. And I think we're seeing uh, a lot more mainstream momentum in general, certainly in the yes. U.S. and I think in the U.K. and some other places. Um, so so they, you know, there was an interest there, a particular 
man by the name of Duncan Proudfoot who came to us um, to, to Kieran first and, and uh, you know, to wanted to, to have something and, and, you know, kind of work through the idea with him. And I think that, you know, the big thing is, um, you know, for people listening, and I tried to convey this when we announced it too, I mean, it's a bit of a, hopefully anyway, something for everyone and certainly you know, I want to be transparent with folks who I think, you know, the folks who follow me and, and Karen, and, um, I think certainly we have a lot of sort of the, the hardcore kind of following that are in the, the weeds of the day-to-day women's soccer. And, um, there is stuff in there for uh, those folks. I, I think there's, you know, at the very least, there are a bunch of exclusive interviews. Um, you know, there are some sort of newer nuggets. And I, I would say on my end, especially kind of different perspectives, I tried to kind of you know, I think 2015 World Cup especially was more or less quite well told on, on all levels and platforms, but tried to add some of my perspective as someone who was with the team for 30-some days and kind of, you know, the things that might have looked like they were happening on the outside on TV, maybe not necessarily so, um, or, or, you know, just kind of what was going on on the inside. So, um, you know, the, the big target, and this was what, Little Brown, the publisher, wants, and, and, you know, this is kind of, I think, a, a microcosm, you know, a struggle that, that's within our sport of how do you grow while maintaining authenticity, and you can't really grow without bringing in new fans, is um, it, it is somewhat targeted to a more casual fan of, um, you know, just telling some of these stories that they might not be aware of, and certainly a U.S. and U.K. sort of uh, slant to them, or, or focus, I should say, so... Um, you know, I think the U.S. is represented for the most part in in almost every World Cup. There is a U.S. story, right? From, from right. Each one. Um, and then a couple different England stories. We've got Kelly Smith wrote the forward, and then she's, you know, her her breakout tournament is explored in, in its own chapter. So a bunch of each chapter is its own story. Um, you know, particularly on the U.S. front, tried to thread some of those together in terms of you mentioned earlier, 2011 that quarterfinal was kind of the spark to everything that is now. Um, so that idea is explored quite a bit. And then it carries into uh, the 2015 chapter as well and, and kind of that theme of, of a continuation. And obviously I think we're entering into, you know, yet another phase of that now in 2019. Yeah, there's so many great stories. And, and I know it's challenging um, when you know you have – a readership that some of them might know every story already and, <laughs> right. and, and, and some are hearing it for the first time or they first engaged in 2011 or they first engaged in 2012 or 2015, or maybe this is their, their first world cup. But I think, right. you know, even if you've heard the story before, it's, it's great to see it in the context of all these stories, putting all of them together. Because one of the things that, that, I think has been missing is the complete story where we hear so much about that first world cup. I mean, it's such a great cliche of, Oh, they had $10 per diem and they right. played every other day. It's like, but then you never hear about the ones in between. And I, and I think the transition to 95 where it was a much smaller tournament and then, you know, 99 wanting to the organizers when I was like, no, we want to put it in big ones. And then, you know, 2003 right. getting moved to the, you know, so, so it's like, it's not just that, look back at 91 and look at today. It's, it's like, no, there is a really interesting narrative between the start and, and where we are now. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we do our best to, I mean, every tournament is represented in, in some fashion. Um, I do think, you know, 95 itself 
um, is probably the least pulled out um, in terms of its own, you know, standing on its own for. And it's it's probably the hardest one. It's probably the hardest one. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Having uh, having done the book and and honestly on a a pretty expedited timeline as well. So um, yeah, I would say the hardest in terms of tracking certain certain folks down. Um, So so that's explored, you know, within the context a bit of. 91 and 99 and, and, you know, kind of that transition, um, between the two. So, yeah, I mean, we've got the first world cup in there, um, certainly straight through 2015 and kind of setting up 2019. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's hopefully a little bit of something for everybody that, that, you know, being retold for some that might be, you know, the, the extremely hardcore followers. And then, um, you know, I, I hope, and I think that's the, the hope of this book with, um, the initial idea for it is that, you know, I think 2019, we're going to see much like 2015, a lot of people suddenly coming around. And, you know, I think anybody listening to this podcast, especially this far in of, of me babbling is probably like, you know, well versed in the game, but there are going to be people who come around in June who are like, so like, who's this Alex Morgan? I've heard of her. And like, yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, I'm not saying that's the target audience per se, but those folks are going to have a lot of, catching up to do. And, and I think this is, this is meant to sort of be for, for both of those types of people. Well, especially when, I mean, the soccer junkie that I am every now and then I'm on Amazon and I'll Google just to see, you know, like women's soccer book. <laughs> okay. right. And, and, you know, it's, it's, there's a few biographies and a lot of young adult kid stuff, but I'm like, no, I want, I want more. So it's, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think you're, you're kind of filling that niche that the person that is already engaged that wants more can Google that and find your book. But the person who's getting engaged for the first time, it's like, Hey, I, I want to know more. I didn't, you know, I right. who knew. And they, they search that on Amazon, like, Hey, there's actually a book I can read about and, <laughs> something, yeah. and something that's not targeted at 12 year olds. Yeah, and I actually I didn't even think about this when I got a question on Twitter when we announced it from someone that was um, is it uh, teen friendly? I think was the question. I hadn't even thought of it. I would say generally yes, but I mean we left. I know in my chapters is particular. Um, there are a couple of there's a little bit of choice language within quotes that we left raw for the authenticity of them. Of um, in, in the 2011 game in particular, the Brazil quarterfinal where you know, speaking to some of the players involved and their recollection of like the, the Oh crap moment with, you know, some different words there. And, right. Um, right. So, but I, so yeah. I would think, I would think that that parent was probably more asking, like, it's not violent, like game of Thrones, right? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so definitely, you know, all age, like, you know, all age ranges and, uh, you know, a couple of, a couple of words here and there, but probably a few out of, you know, 200 some pages. So, Awesome. Awesome. So how, how can people pre-order this book? Yeah. So the making of the women's world cup, um, pretty easy sort of uh, search on, on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. Um, it originates in the UK with the U S outlet. So I guess I would say just make sure you're in the right, uh, the right geographic domain. Um, but you can get it on the UK versions of, of, uh, Amazon and Waterstones is the big thing over there. Um, mm-hmm. In the U.S., Barnes and Noble, Amazon, uh, or you can just um, at Jeff Kasuf and uh, J.F.F. 
K-A-S-S-O-U-F. And uh, it's pinned on my social handles. And we've got it, you know, on equalizersoccer.com. And, and uh, yeah, I think that probably covers most of the uh, – you should be able to find it one of those ways. <laughs> now, when when is the official release date? Yeah, so it actually varies slightly based on your location because I think just based on it being printed in the U.K., um, early May is the easiest way to answer that. Uh, uh-huh. I think the UK will get it slightly earlier based on, I think it's the difference was a week. So, um, so early May, and then I plan to have, um, some copies in hand for an event that we're planning that we're about to drop some details on, um, in Raleigh, North Carolina. So, uh, for early April that I'll have some advanced copies on hand in person. So, um, yeah. So if you so, yeah, so if you're in North Carolina, you definitely want to be paying attention to, to Jeff's social handles and Equalizer Soccer. So, because that'd be that'd be a great way to snag an early copy. Well, let's let's change direction. Because um, one of the other reasons I wanted to talk to you this week was just a little follow up on the U.S. Women's National Team players lawsuit. We had an official response from U.S. Soccer President Carlos Cordero last week. Um, it went three or four four days ago. You know, there's not a lot, obviously, that's that's happening. You know, in just the week or so that this lawsuit's been out. But what is what is the Cordero's response tell us? Yeah, I, I think you're you're right in saying that it doesn't. Uh, maybe I'm inferring it, but you know that it doesn't say a lot per se. But I think the tone of it, and this has been discussed a bit in the days since, is obviously uh, a bit different than we've seen in the past. Um, mostly from his predecessor um, and, you know, Sunil Gulati's sort of regime, if you will. But um, I think it's been a little bit more receptive, at least, you know, through, I would admit, you know, granted uh, a week later, it's a, it's a open letter um, shared via, you know, email blast and social media. But um, I think previously we obviously saw a very quick, response from Sunil Gulati and, and, you know, team around him of um, essentially, you know, fighting the idea that there was any kind of unequal treatment um, and Carlos Cordero uh, basically conceding that, yes, the goal is equitable pay and they're going to work hard to to get to that point and they understand the, the national team's concerns. So I think just from a tone perspective, you see a bit of a different approach and, and I think to some degree it has to be. Um, for a few different reasons of, of um, both, you know, where things stand with the team. I would say the overall climate of, of that, this, this change being needed, you know, within soccer, within so many different aspects of, of the world. Right. Um, right. And, and the fact that, you know, he more or less campaigned on the general idea of it. So um, I think that, that'll be interesting to see how he has to sort of be held accountable to, what he said and exactly how what he said is interpreted in that sense. Especially since he was someone when uh, they were working on the 2026 bid, bid, I think he was like, well, we're going to work on 2027, right? Oh, yeah, 2027. And that, that's cooled off a bit, too. I mean, I think I think he was specifically asked about that recently, and the answer was more to the tune of, you know, let's get through some of these more pressing issues first. And then we'll talk about 2027. But I mean, I think it's worth reminding and certainly worth reminding him should things change that that was a, a big, uh, a big platform for him on the women's side of his campaigning. Especially when we see how all of a sudden there's what a million federations wanting 2023, which I think <laughs> is kind of fun. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, nine, nine federations. Uh, you know, I expect probably half of those to drop off by the time the, right. the month, right. at least a few of them, yeah. But, but I like at least some of them are, are trying to say something. I mean, even Bolivia, who, according to Soccer America, has never even hosted one senior women's international game. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it, But it's like, hey, they clearly see it as, you know, this is something we need to get in on. You know, yeah, um, that was, but that so, was but the so, curious one. Go ahead. No, yeah. I was going to say that was the curious one. I think it's interesting that things to note there. I have no idea if there is anything in the works. I have no Bolivian contacts, but you know, if, if it's conceivable that um, by expressing interest to bid, which I think is worth making clear to people, like it means nothing in terms of commitment, but you get the bid book. But by expressing interest, you can submit a bid either individually or as a joint bid. So it leaves you the flexibility over the next month for a Bolivia to go to Argentina and say, you know, we're bordering nations. Maybe we can work out a joint bid here. Um, oh, gotcha. I'm not, I don't, I have no knowledge of that happening, but. Right. But um, it, but it opens yeah. that up. Right. It leaves it open. I mean, even, you know, in theory, and I, again, this one's probably an absolutely not happening, but, you know, in theory that leaves it open to, you know, Australia and New Zealand somehow coming together to say, well, your East Coast and us together could make something happen. I mean, at least, you know, you just have to express the interest and, and then you're in the next stage. Gotcha. Well, last thing for you, Jeff, um, kind of connected to Carlos Cordero. What do we know about the, the process for hiring a GM for the U.S. Women's National Team program, similar to, you know, they hired Ernie Stewart last year to oversee the men's national team program. We might not know anything, um, but, you know, is there anything, is there any update on that? Uh, latest update I got, not not a yesterday kind of update, but recently was, um, to no surprise, behind the timeline that was given in September, I think, was when they made like a big formal announcement about when they might announce it. Um, and that was, you know, that's delayed since. So we're, we're here talking in March. By that September timeline, essentially, there should be a GM by now. Um, and they are only down to the point of the three stages of like a huge pool down to 20 some, I think it was two dozen roughly was the number down to 10 or 11 phone calls and then down to five, six, depending on the candidates in person interviews. Um, we're still in the last I knew that phone call stage, which um, is, I think probably, I think we saw with the men's GM search and obviously the coaching search tied to it was extremely slow, frustratingly so. And, and, you know, to some degree, there was justification there with everything going on, but it, it ended up stretching out so long that I think everybody could agree it became ridiculous. Um, you know, there's something, there's some of that angle. And then obviously, um, you know, U.S. soccer will quietly concede this, I think, is that like, you know, we're three months from a World Cup. So giving Jill Ellis a new boss is kind of a weird thing to do. Um, so right. I and, and that's, that's yeah. been my, my feeling, like, I don't think this process needs to rush until after the world cup is over. Right. So, so the latest, you know, that Carlos Cordero said publicly and, and, you know, would be the same behind the scenes is like, maybe this may time frame, but I, I think if you read between the lines of how it's being said, even, I think we're looking at a post world cup. Um, hiring because it just it doesn't make any sense to come out 
a month before the World Cup and say, here's our GM, you know, now all of a sudden, I don't think Jill Ellis would necessarily be worried about anything at that point because she's got enough to worry about going into that World Cup, right. but it just creates a very strange dynamic. And and honestly, you might go to the World Cup and whether you win it or bomb out, either way, you've got to change how you're looking at things and making decisions come July. So um, I wouldn't be surprised to see this pushed into the summer myself. And Yeah, that just makes sense, sense to me. You know, it's like, maybe you have all the pieces together and you don't, you know, make your final decisions till after the world cup. But yeah, there's so many other things going on. Let's, let's focus on those. Well, Jeff, congratulations to you and Karen for, you know, completing the book and, and having that launch coming out. And, you know, I'm hoping a lot of people will put their money where their soccer is and buy the book. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Please do. All right, Jen Cooper, the Keeper here with Hal Kaiser, my partner in Goofy um, Houston Dash Scrimmage Broadcasting. I think that's probably the best way <laughs> to describe how what you and I did last weekend uh, via Mixler. Yeah, okay. But <laughs> but that's that's only part of the reason we're here to talk. We're mostly uh, definitely obviously Dash, but uh, but going back a little bit uh, all the way back to last May when we last talked for the mix zone and, and things were pretty dire uh, for the dash at that point of the season. I think what they had, what, like one goal maybe or two goals or no wins. Yeah, or I, something. I think that was, I think that was five games in and the first five games, as you say, were, were pretty dire. Yeah. And, and so I know this is pretty challenging, but like, how would you in, you know, 50 words or less describe what happened for the rest of the season? <laughs> Well, the the next, I mean, after our kind of bash fest, the next game, Rachel Daly magically was at forward, and Chrissy Mewis was in the midfield. Rachel went on to have a great season, scored a lot of goals. Chrissy Mewis was sort of a new, rejuvenated Chrissy Mewis up until the point where she unfortunately got injured. Um, you know, despite the bad off season from a roster move standpoint, the the second half of the season they did quite well, adding Sofia Huerta, Taylor Como. Um, Chappie, Horn, Chappie, Chappie. Oh Polking my God. The, yeah. the Chapman trade, I felt like was the beginning of good trades. Yeah. It was like a, a whole new dash in sense because they've never had a great reputation as, as traders. But I mean, by the end of the season, you had a lot of pieces in place where you could start to feel really comfortable that if they could keep them all, then, they'd be in, in a good spot to uh, to build for the 2019 season. And then, of course, you know, it gets to the end of the season. They they blasted Sky Blue and Washington. They and North Carolina were the only two teams actually in the league that took max points from Sky Blue and Washington. Didn't get a lot off of other teams, but enough to finish in, uh, you know, not in the bottom three, which I'm not sure most of us would have expected them to be outside the bottom three at the start of the season. Vera left in the off season and, and, you know, then we get into the season and they hire James Clarkson. And I've, I've probably said this before, but, um, you know, I, I wouldn't have immediately thought of James as a candidate for, for the dash, but, um, after he was named, I was like, well, that, that kind of makes sense. Here's someone that, you know, 
knows the club, knows the city, has actually been engaged with the Dash for the last year that um, I wasn't aware that since the Dash were practicing in the evening last night, that last year, that Dash and Dynamo Academy were practicing at the same time. So he had been, you know, talking with Farrah a lot. And he was the one that recommended Eddie Robinson to be an assistant coach. Um, and I've just been you know, trying to, you know, as a hometown girl, trying to keep my excitement under control that uh, we're seeing a dash that I'd say how we've never seen before. Yeah. I mean, like you say, I think James was not necessarily the obvious choice. And of course, anytime that you hire someone who hasn't coached women before, hasn't coached professionally, that's always going to raise eyebrows. And I mean, it certainly did for me uh, initially until I had the chance to talk to him myself and and hear feedback from your conversations with him as well. And I mean, he's really kind of been a breath of fresh air for the organization as as a whole, I would say from a a number of levels. I mean, one is um, this team has kind of tended to have a, a negative reputation around the league with players as to how they treat players. And, and I say that more, you know, not actively treating them in a bad way, but just not being conscious of the difference between a male player for the Dynamo who's making six figures um, and the things that they have to think about and worry about versus somebody who's on minimum wage in NWSL and 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 what right. to them. Right. Um, and you know, trades. I think trades so far. I mean, the teams. My impression is teams came in trying to take advantage. Of James, um, you know, since he's new to the league and, and the Dash don't really have a great reputation, as I said, for trading as a whole. And I mean, he's he's held the line there. And, and the one trade that he's done, I think, was a very good trade. Um, in, yeah. Christine Nairn in. Um, and uh, draft, I mean, the, the prep, I mean, the enthusiasm, the preparation, the willingness. I mean, I, I said, I made a comment on Twitter a month or two ago where I said in the business world, I've worked with a lot of people who think they're experts in everything and don't ever get help from anybody. And they'll typically blow up in flames at some point in time. And I've worked (laughs) with a lot of people who are are aware of what they're good at, who very aware of what they're not and surround themselves by people who fill in those blanks and they're successful. And he's, he's done. I mean, he's, he's reached out to, um, everybody he can for input and uh, and help, including you and I, um, and, and that's good to see. Um, uh, yeah, I think he's he's um, tried to approach, tried to change the culture of the organization in terms of how it treats players. They're they're living in a very nice apartment complex this year. I mean, nice apartment, nice accommodations. Um, even you know, I've. I, Said this on Twitter this week. They've they've let go all the the, the trialists that they brought in. Um, mm-hmm. James said James gave them all invitations to come back during the Women's World Cup. But unlike the, kind of the reputation of the team in the past, where they keep players around and sort of dangle a contract in front of them that you know maybe you'll earn a contract. And he was very upfront and said, um, "I can't give you a contract. Uh, you need to be playing. You know, go somewhere where you can play." Uh, if you're available to come back during the summer, we'd love to have you. Um, but and and he said maybe that'll come back and bite me in the rear that that I can't get enough players this summer. But I wanted to be upfront and honest with them, and instead of 
instead of, you know, dragging them along. And and I think that's that's the kind of mistake the organization has made in the past, not recognizing the challenges of being sort of a fringe or even a core women's soccer player and um, treating those players in, in the way that they deserve to be treated based on that. Well, and, and also what what that creates long term, um, you know, we know how small the women's soccer world is, um, not yeah. only for people that follow it, but also like for, for the players, they all know each other. They'll they'll talk, um, you know, negative experience at, at different clubs, as, as we've seen, you know, all that information gets shared. And then, you know, players are less likely to want to go to that club. Um, so I feel like James is is you know, really turning that culture around by that's like, that's how you treat players. And it's, it's beyond even the, what they deserve, but how you treat people and right. how you run, how you run a, a, yeah. How you run an organization. Yeah. And all things that should be really simple that just haven't been done well in the past that matter. I mean, that right. matter in, right. in trying to get players to come here. And it's the um, intangible, it yeah, 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 that you can't yeah. see necessarily on game day, but really affect yeah. everything. Well, and fans and fans wonder, you know, over the last five years, they wonder why players leave, or want out, um, and there's right. a lot of reasons for that. But I, mean, I think you look at James when he came in, reached out to all the players immediately. Everybody's back. I mean, this is what 16 players back from last year's roster. Yeah, the most um, the Dash have ever had return. Yeah, and that's that's really important. So then you add in a lot of good pieces, uh, for a lot of you know potentially good pieces from the draft, um, some good signings. Uh, Sophie Schmidt is, I think, a really big one. And we saw in the in-house scrimmage this past Saturday that she absolutely bossed the midfield. Um, yes. Uh, you know, and that's I know James was delighted by that. That's exactly what he was hoping for. Christine and I think she only looks, got beat once the entire scrimmage. I think she only got yeah. beat once on the ball. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, they're, the, the roster looks, I, I think it's fair to say the best roster they've had in six years. Uh, so then, you know, the question becomes, well, can he coach? Is, is the next yeah. thing for this? <laughs> I mean, from, from what I've seen, I think the feedback from players that I've had is uh, is is really positive on uh, on practices. Um, he's got a clear philosophy that he's implementing with the team, and I won't say too much about it so that you know we don't spoil it for <laughs> we don't give other teams a preview uh, when they're coming in when Seattle's coming in for the uh, the start of the season. You know they won't know exactly what to expect, um, uh, especially since the Dash aren't playing in the Portland uh, Invitational this year, so other teams won't get a chance to see them before the season starts. Right. Um, but, right. you know, Good he, point. I, I think, you know, I, I think all in all, um, roles are clear. Um, you know, what he expects of them is clear. Um, what it takes to, to, to get in the, the match day 11, I think, looks pretty clear, which definitely wasn't the case last year. Um, and I mean, in the last five years, really. Um, so, I, I, you know, everything points up. Um, so hopefully... When the season starts, we'll see that on the the pitch that uh, that collective effort of over the past off season translates into into wins on the pitch. I mean, I'm I, I can't wait for the season to start to see this, you know, you know, in a real NWSL match. So we, so we've seen uh, two real scrimmages so far with you know the bulk of. Uh, 
you know, the regular players separate from that first one, which was almost completely trialless. Um, they've right. got a big match against AM this weekend, which at this point looks to be their, their biggest uh, challenge for preseason. Uh, the following weekend, they play Texas Tech, which is, you know, I would say not quite as strong as, as a and um, you know, and I know they're hoping to, to schedule one more opponent for preseason if they can. Um, but I'm just, you know, I, I'm feeling really positive. And, and I, I think it's also interesting to look at the dash roster and see that, Hey, they have no U S allocations. Um, yeah. There's, I would say maybe a 1% chance that Jane ends up, going to uh france um you know for the world cup and that would be because one of the the top three keepers has been injured uh, right but so that so i think it's interesting that they're not losing anyone from the u.s but you know they stand to lose four canadians now um two australians of course one of those two is kaya simon who probably by the time she would be healthy would be leaving if she makes the roster. So she's kind of a question mark. And then of course, Rachel Daly for England and Kayla McCoy for Jamaica. But I, but I feel like the pieces that aren't going, you know, when you think about Sophia Huerta, Christine Ewis, who should be back playing by, uh, you know, maybe mid May, late May, Kaleo high, you know, Bianca, Jane, Amber, it's, it's like, uh, it's just the strongest Nairn. spine. Nairn. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 It's like the strongest spine we've ever seen, uh, you know, for this team. Yeah. And, and this is, I mean, we saw the same thing in 2015 this year, half uh, 24 games. Um, it looks like uh, most of the national team players will miss 12 of those. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Max, it, it makes the season unpredictable. Max, yeah. And, yeah, it makes the season unpredictable. So, you know, how strong your roster is when everybody's gone is really important. And I do think they've done a good job. Um, I mean, 2015, the, the Dash roster was built with that in mind as well. But I think if you look player for player at the talent level of, of what's left um, for this year, I mean, you, you can have a back line that's going to have the likes of uh, Satara, Murray, uh, Amber Brooks, Ali Prysock, who I think has looked really good as, as a rookie in, in training and in the game so far. Ari Romero. Um, T- Taylor Como. Who seems, who seems stronger. Ari, Ari seems stronger yeah. than, you know, her rookie year, certainly. Yeah, yeah. You have Christine Nairn, Haley Hansen. Um, uh, I think probably CeCe Kaiser slots in as, a, slots in as an attacking midfielder uh, during that time, perhaps, and she's looked really promising. Um, Huerta, like you said, um, Oh, I, I mean, it's, it's just a good, it's a, it's definitely a much better team than was the case during the 2015 women's world cup. And I think, you know, it could be, it could easily be one of the best teams in the league during that period. So if they can rack up max points or a lot of points during that stretch, then they're sitting in a, in a good spot for the rest of the season. You know, and you look at the changes too, from four years ago that, okay, this is the first year that, you know, roster max is 22 instead of 20, you know, which, which it's helps. Really 26. I mean, I, I was well, having a well, conversation with right. James, but it's really 26. Right. But yeah, it, it's, it's like, and, and that's the kind of thing. It's like having those four supplemental spots, you know, which allows a player to stay and train with the team and not be totally poor, <laughs> you know, it, it, yeah. it's like, 
that's great, you know, to have that supplemental option. And of course, it's not clear. I, I mean, I'm assuming that teams don't have to use those spots. I don't know why they wouldn't unless they're really strapped financially, but you know, it's, I would say it's right. up to four supplemental spots, but that's, yeah, it's exactly. just such a huge difference, especially when we've seen the last few years, how hard it is for a rookie to come into the league and get some playing time, you know, Boston contraction aside, it's still pretty tough, but that supplemental spot gives them time to like adjust and train more with the team. And then of course, a year like this or an Olympic year, you actually have a, a shot to, to get some real playing time. Yeah. And the, and the, the, those supplemental spots, cause I, I don't, I, I said this on Twitter this week. I don't know that it was necessarily clear in January what that really meant yeah. wasn't for me. Um, yeah, and, you know, talking with talking with James, it's really like I said, it's really twenty. You you can carry twenty six players. So those those four players, those four supplemental spots, contract the yeah. same as everybody else at yeah. the minimum wage. But they're just, it just it's like an MLS off budget spot. They and they can play they can play all season long. They can play in any they game. Just, it's not well. Not well, like they can't. Well, they can't. Um, I was under the impression that they're only available if one of your 22 is not or something. Yeah. That, well, if, if that's the case, that's and, not, and that's, uh, and that's, and that's what we've had so little communication with the league that, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah. What, I, what I, what I was told is you can use them. You can use them anytime. They're just off budget spots. Just like if you think of MLS, you have, you have MLS on budget spots, gotcha. off budget spots. That's even but, better. But, you know, so, yeah, exactly. So that's why I say it's a 26 player roster based yeah. on that understanding it's just those back four and that yeah. and that's one of the things that, that the league sort of really needed is to carry some of these later round draft picks that may have upside but you couldn't keep with with you know 20 players 20 player rosters yeah and, you know you stick them in, in an off budget spot where they don't hit the salary cap and uh and see how they develop yeah and i think it, that's a big so i think crucial. that's a big plus for the, the league yeah yeah well, and that's what I was thinking last year during CONCACAF World Cup qualifying, especially watching, you know, some of the, the Panamanian players like Keneath Bailey. I, I was thinking CONCACAF needs to subsidize one supplemental spot per NWSL club for a player from one of the CONCACAF nations where they would not have an opportunity to play NCAA soccer. Unlike most of the Jamaicans, yeah. you know, they're playing in NCAA. A player like Keneath Bailey probably would not have the schooling to, you know, easily get into an NCAA school or transition to an NCAA school. But could you imagine right. if she had a professional level training environment week in, week out for six months, yeah, even, even, even if she didn't play in an NWSL game, but just like a supplemental spot, not, you know, not going back to like 2013, 2014, where Mexican Federation is subsidizing spots and then their players aren't playing and they're getting all frustrated, but just a purely, a purely developmental kind of thing. So yeah, Yeah. really excited about those, those roster spots. So Hal, any, any last thoughts uh, about the dash, you know, just a little less than three weeks, no, a little less than four weeks out from opening day, just, uh, you know, what you've seen. Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, like you say, you're excited. I'm excited. I mean, the reason I'm back covering the team this year, um, besides, aside from the fact that there's no media, so it was time to since court uh, <laughs> was was moved off by the uh, by the Chronicle. Um, is is you know, I'm I'm 
I'm excited as well. I'm, I'm as bullish or as hopeful as I've, I think I've ever been. We did, you mentioned Eddie Robinson. Um, I mean, just come back to him real quick because he's back as part of the coaching staff. I think, you know, he got knocked a lot when he was hired last year, but he was fantastic for the team. He, he was really an important part of the coaching staff last year and then keeping him around, um, brought that continuity and, uh, and his enthusiasm because he's, as you know, I mean, you talk to him as well. He's very enthusiastic and, and fully committed to this. So it's good to have him around as, as a part of the team. Yeah. His, his oh, enthusiasm got, is just great. Yeah. We, three weeks ago, we lose the national team players again, uh, in, in the first part of April. Then they show up a few days before, um, before the, the first game of the season. So, um, this Texas A&M friendly. If, if everybody has a chance to get out there uh, in the area, I would I would recommend it. You're really going to see um, the the team. I think that uh, that is the team come opening day, um, and it should be a, a lot of fun. And of course, we will do another goofy cast um, via Mixler. We will for this game. It sh- it should be a little less goofy because all the players should have numbers. Um, <laughs> so, and, and we'll, we'll be off the off field level level. So it'll be a little easier to call the game. So that'll be 5 PM right. Saturday. we got to climb uh, up that, we got to climb up that steep ladder where I hit my head last time. Uh, no, they've actually moved us to the other side of the field. So it shouldn't oh, be oh, as, good. as, as dangerous as, as it was okay. last time. Well, how, Thanks for your thoughts. And of course, you know, selfishly, I'm glad that you're back covering the dash, but I'm sure a lot of uh, women soccer fans are too. Thank you. It's good to be back. Time to wrap it up with the back four. NWSL preseason is well underway. All teams have been scrimmaging or playing college teams. Be sure to check out the NWSL Club rosters link at keepernotes.com. I am trying to keep those updated as teams make player announcements. And also, I've been doing casual live coverage of Dash scrimmages via Mixler, and that's M-I-X-L-R. And I will do the same this weekend when the Dash play Texas A&M this Saturday, March 23rd. So just listen live via Mixler.com slash KeeperNotes or via the Mixler app, that's M-I-X-L-R, at 5 p.m. Central Time. Hal Kaiser and I will be live talking Houston Dash and Texas A&M. Coming up in April, before the season starts, we have two friendlies for the U.S. Women's National Team in the early April FIFA window. Thursday, April 4th, they'll play Australia, and then Sunday, April 7th, they'll face Belgium for the first time. Both of those games, of course, live on TV. For more info, see ussoccer.com. And I'm thinking not far after those games, we'll get the official World Cup roster. If you haven't checked out my new t-shirt designs, I've made a couple of kind of Dash-specific designs, but I have more t-shirt designs coming uh, for Women's World Cup later this year. Check out keepernotes.spreadshirt.com. $2 of every shirt sold from my t-shirt site goes to the NWSL Players Association. 
And last but not least, be sure you're following MixZone and Keeper Notes on Twitter. That's just at MixZone with two X's and at Keeper Notes. Uh, so you can stay up with all the latest geeky women's soccer stats and occasional, occasionally uh, answer trivia questions for prizes. All right, that's it for this episode of the MixZone. Thanks to everyone for listening or reaching out via email or tweeting or whatever. And of course, thanks to Sean for making this all happen. But now she's anybody's girl.